Good morning. Hey, this is a new experience for us with chapel in a, in a new way, and uh, we are glad to have you here. We know there's going to be some kinks today, um, but, but we just ask that you bear with us, and we ask that you uh, come before the Lord and worship today. Uh, my name's Randon Willard. I am the director of the Center for Student Engagement, and I'm the new announcement guy. Um, but, but today, here's what I want you to be thinking about. You're starting a new semester and I want you to think about the rhythms that you need to have. This semester, more than ever, we need to be thinking about the rhythms and the habits that we're going to establish. We need to, to, to practice um, habits and rhythms that allow us to really thrive. And so what are those for you? How are you going to take care of yourself physically? How are you going to take care of yourself spiritually this semester? How are you going to take care of yourself relationally this semester? What does that look like? Maybe it means coming to one of our rec nights that we do every Thursday night. Maybe it means um, joining intramurals. Maybe that means becoming part of FCA. Or maybe that means um, um, just really diving into your own spiritual life on campus. Whatever that is, be thinking about that today. What are those rhythms? What are those practices? What are those things that you can begin to establish? Uh, as we jump into chapel, uh, we are going to watch a performance from New Song.
As I said, welcome to chapel. Uh, Chapel 2020, like everything in 2020, looks a little different. Uh, But in some ways, it's really fun. Uh, We get to be in smaller groups together. We get to engage this hopefully differently. Uh, And I hope that it gives you a space and a place to really dive in uh, and listen and learn and to grow uh, throughout this semester. Uh, one, of the, one of the things we're going to do this semester is read the Apostles' Creed uh, together. And so if you have your bulletin, uh, go, go ahead and open it up. Uh, some of you may say, what is the Apostles' Creed? It is, it is an ancient, man, uh, is an ancient uh, writing that, that is dated to the very beginning of Christianity. And um, that's really cool that we get to, to state together a statement of what, we, what, what Christians believe. If you don't consider yourself a Christian, please don't feel like you need to read this with us. But if you do, um, please join in and, and read with me responsively. Christian, what do you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Good morning. Please join your hearts together in prayer for our country and the campus and for the personal concerns that many have. And in the conclusion of the prayer, as is our custom, we will be reading the Lord's Prayer together that is found in your bulletin. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have seen us and you have known us from the very beginning and you have made us for this time and so for that we thank you that you have been so generous and kind and merciful that you have been with us from the very beginning even as you are with us now Lord help us to see your work in your people and in the land Lord, we pray that you would stay your hand and that you would restore us to health. That you would help us, Lord, to be reunited and be able to speak freely, to greet each other by hand, to offer a hug when we need one. Lord, we ask in this time that you would restore us in this way. Even now, Lord, though, we ask also that you would give us patience and forbearance, that we might be able to stand up under the strain and the burden of the extra responsibility 
and caution and thoughtfulness that we all need to have in order to encourage each other and strengthen each other in faithfulness and resolve. And also, Lord, that we would be submissive to you and to your Son, Jesus Christ, who has asked us to raise all other concerns, people that, people's concerns above our own concerns, and that we would not think first that our own minds contain what is right, but that we would look in your word and in your scriptures and in the word that you place in our heart through careful prayer, that we would turn to you to see what is right and good and to follow your path. And that we would not do what is right in our own eyes, but we would do what you have called is good. Lord, we ask that you would be with those around us, our political leaders who are guiding the country and guiding the states and guiding the cities that we live in, that you would help them to have wisdom and that they would be sympathetic to the situations and conditions of the people that they govern. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would be with those who stand in leadership over us, that you would encourage them and strengthen them, Lord, for the decisions are great and numerous and continuous, that you would continue to bless them, Lord, with wisdom and with patience and strength for the task. And Heavenly Father, we ask for those who are going about their everyday work, simply concerned with the tasks that are in hand, the work of the day, that you would help all of us, Lord, to point ourselves towards those tasks with purpose and prayerfulness, that we would come before you each day, Lord, in the morning, asking your mercy, because it is true, Lord, that your mercies are new every morning and that you guide us with a faithful hand and with a comforting spirit. And Heavenly Father, we just pray that you would be with each one of us throughout this day and throughout this semester, that you would guide us and lead us by your Spirit, and that you would humble our hearts, help us to confess our sins, help us to repent before you and before others, so that we would be meek and mild and willing to follow you in all that you would have us to do. Lord, I ask now that you would be with us as we join our hearts together, saying the prayer that your Son has taught us to pray, beginning, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Psalm 99, verses 1 through 5. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. The king in his might loves justice, you have established equity. 
You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. This is the word of the Lord. So during this season, uh, we will not be singing the psalms together, but we still want the psalms in our weekly rhythm as, as a people, and we still want the psalms to dwell in us richly. So each week in chapel, we will be reading the psalms together as a people. This morning's topic is the holiness of God, and it's in God's holiness that he calls and saves and rescues a people. So I would invite all of us to read Psalm 47 together. Would you read with me? Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud shouts of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us and nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Amen. Good morning, Geneva. I greet you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and I welcome you back to campus. It's, uh, it's good for me to be here. It's good to have you here. Um, you know, I live here on College Hill, and when you guys aren't around, uh, life gets a bit slow, and uh, honestly, that's nice for a time, but it's been slow for a very long time now, and uh, we've missed you, and even just walking around on, in the neighborhood, we feel new life and vitality here, uh, and so uh, everything's a buzz again, and we feel your presence as a neighborhood, and we value your presence here, so we're glad that you're back. Obviously, uh, chapel is very different at this point, different from what we're used to, um, but I'm glad to actually be speaking to people and to faces rather than just speaking into a phone or a camera. Uh, I know some of you are just watching on the screen right now, wherever you're, oh yeah, maybe over there. Uh, you're watching on the screen right now, and uh, it would be nice to be all together, but we're together in spirit. Um, even though we are split up in these small groups, I believe uh, campus life and face-to-face -face interactions are very important for your education and spiritual growth and maturity. And so I'm glad that you're all on campus and we're praying hard that it will stay that way. Special welcome to you freshmen and you transfers. Uh, you, have to, you have a hard start to your college career, uh, but the Lord overcomes all these barriers and I trust the Lord will encourage you and strengthen you through these strange times. Uh, last year, we had a theme for the year in chapel. We focused on the theme of the promises of God. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have many glorious promises. All the promises of God are ours in Christ Jesus. 
Uh, and so I introduce to you uh, the theme for this year. The theme is going to be knowing God. Knowing God. Uh, one theologian said that the most important thing about you is what you think about God. The most important thing about you is what you think about God. And I think he's right. Everything you do in life ultimately reflects what you actually believe about God. Every action, every word, every thought is tied to some understanding or misunderstanding about the character or person of God. And so, for example, if I believe that God is distant or he doesn't really care or he's not really there, then that's going to lead me to a certain way of life, a certain way of thinking. But if you believe God is good and is faithful and is with you, that will lead you, if you really believe that, that will lead you to live your life a certain way. In fact, as you reflect on your own life, you could actually connect every sin that's ever been committed uh, in your life, every perversion, every thoughtless word, you could connect it to something, some lie that you've believed about God. The most important thing about you is what you believe about God. So this year in chapel, we're going to be focusing on knowing God and who he really is. And to begin our time, um, I'm going to read from Isaiah chapter 6, first eight verses. You have it printed there. Uh, The crystal clear message of this vision that God gives to Isaiah is that God is holy. God is holy. So listen as I read and let your mind and your heart be in awe of the holy God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he'd taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. Natural end. The reading of God's holy word. May he open our eyes to see His holy glory. Uh, After three years of seminary, I was trying to discern if God was calling me to serve as a foreign missionary somewhere around the world. And so to explore this possibility, I made plans to take a trip around the world so that I could visit various missions and shadow various missionaries to see what their day-to-day life was like. And so for seven months, I had the opportunity to travel around the world And it was challenging and enlightening and soul-shaping. It gave me new insights into the Word of God and His promises. It gave me a greater appreciation for missionaries who are serving all around the world in places where the work is very hard. I had lots of different experiences. I tasted lots of different kinds of food and drink. 
Uh, I sat around a fire in the midst of mud huts in Uganda as people sang about their cows. Uh, I slipped, sipped uh, fresh juice in Yemen as I asked questions about Islam. I uh, navigated somehow the punctual system, transit system in Japan. Uh, in New Zealand, I hiked what some have argued are the most beautiful trails in the world. I heard stories that blew my mind, and I could go on and on and on. It was this incredible experience. Well, after the trip, I returned home, and naturally people were curious to hear how it went. Uh, they asked the questions. Mainly a question like, uh, how was the trip? How was your trip? That's a good question, an honest question, a question of genuine interest, but how do you actually answer that kind of question? How was your trip? How do you squeeze seven months into a couple of sentences? Or, or how can you uh, uh, respond with one word as you're passing someone uh, along the hall and, and, and answer that question with one word? How do you answer that question? It's actually a very hard question to answer. And no doubt all, all of you have, had that same, have been in that same kind of situation. Um, you've all been in that, you've ha- had that experience probably over the past couple of weeks. You get back to college, people ask you, how was the summer? Or how's your family? Or how's life? And, and these are honest questions, questions that I've asked many of you. And uh, I realize that they're actually pretty tough questions to answer. How do you boil down into one word what you could talk about for a while, for hours, maybe even days? That's a hard question. Well, this uh, dilemma is multiplied exponentially when you ask the question, who is God? Who is God? How can you reduce the person and character of God into a few sentences or even into a word? Who is God? If you had one word to answer that question, someone asked you, who is God, what would you say? God is spirit. God is love. God is creator. God is infinite. God is incomprehensible. God is savior. What would you choose? Well, from this passage, I believe that the best way to answer that question is that God is holy. If someone asks you the question, who is God? And you only have one word to answer. You say, God is holy. A.A. Hodge, a heavyweight theologian back in the 19th century, he wrote this. The holiness of God is not to be conceived of as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of his consummate perfection and total glory. Listen to that. I'm going to read it one more time. The holiness of God is not to be conceived of as one attribute among others. It is rather a general term representing the conception of his consummate perfection and total glory. In other words, holiness is the total glory of all the attributes of God wrapped up together into one. So who is God? God is holy. Live in light of the holiness of God because it changes everything. We're going to reflect on three aspects of the holiness of God. uh, The experience of holiness, the meaning of holiness, and the touch of holiness. The experience, meaning, and touch of holiness. So we're going to start with the experience of holiness. And it's important for us to start with the experience of holiness because there is a massive difference between uh, experience and knowledge. Big difference between the two. 
So, for example, I could, uh, I could hand you the recipe for chicken enchiladas, which is one of my favorites, and I can hand it to you, and, you, and I could say, look how great that is. It's so good. Well, you can't really understand it reading a recipe. You have to experience it. You have to taste it. Or I could hand you the sheet music that has all the notes for Beethoven's Fifth Symphony laid out for you on a piece of paper. And I hand it to you and I say, wow, check this out. It's, so, it's incredible. But you can't really grasp it until you actually experience it and hear it. Well, the principle is true with theology as well. You can read all the systematic theology you want. You can read about the details of the character, the limitless nature of God. You can memorize the catechism questions and answers. But until you're actually confronted with and you experience the holiness of God, it doesn't really mean much. In Isaiah 6, we find one of the great passages that speak of the holiness of God But it's not in the form of a systematic theology. It's not a question and answer, but rather it's given to us in the form of a vision. And it's given to us this way to help us experience the holiness of God. I want you to notice that in this passage, not one single word is actually devoted to the description of God himself. Uh, He talks about what God is sitting on, what God is wearing. He's talking about what the angels are doing surrounding him. But there's not one word devoted to describing the holiness of God himself because there is no adequate language to express his holiness. And because there's no adequate language to express it, Isaiah had to simply describe the environment surrounding God. And he does this to help us experience the holiness of God. So Isaiah said, I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. And that, of course, points to the fact that he's reigning as king over all. He was, he was also wearing a robe, and that robe uh, uh, poured out over the side of his uh, throne, and it extended all the way down to earth and filled the temple. Um, that was a symbol of his greatness. Um, in that day, earthly rulers, it was understood that the longer your robe was, the greater your authority was. And so here, God wears a robe, a th- Uh, that extends from heaven to earth, showing his authority over all things. He has all authority. But what I really want you to focus on, and what I want to really reflect on today, are the angels and the seraphim who flew above him and around him and surrounded him. It doesn't say how many seraphim there were, but you should imagine a great choir of angels. Uh, Now, these angels themselves, they were intimidating creatures, Uh, the name of these angels seem to indicate to us uh, something about their nature. Seraphim literally means the burning ones. The burning ones. Which seems to indicate that these were angels of fire. Angels of flame. And, And as they spoke to one another of the holiness of God, it says that the foundations of the earth, of heaven and earth, shook. These angels were so powerful that as they called out to one another, uh, their voices shook heaven and earth. These powerful burning angels, uh, if one of them appeared to us right now, just one of them, we would all melt away in fear because they're so majestic and glorious. You know, not one comic book hero or villain would be able to stand for a moment against one of these angels. But yet, despite their intimidating uh, appearance and their great power, the most striking thing about these angels is that they stood in timid humility in the presence of God. 
These burning angels, whose voices shook the foundations of the heavens and the earth, they each had six wings. Two wings they used to fly, two wings they used to cover their face, two wings they used to cover their feet. And the reason they're given to us that way, he describes them that way, is because uh, it's the symbol of humility in the presence of a far greater, infinitely more powerful and superior being. And then as they flew, they constantly called out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I heard a joke some time ago, and I hesitate to use a joke because I I hesitate to risk trifling with such a, a powerful passage. But I think it gets to the point of what's going on here. Joke goes like this. You've got to stick with me. The Pope was on his way to the airport. And uh, he was riding in a limousine, and of course there was a chauffeur who was driving him to the airport, but the Pope was running late, and he was afraid he was going to miss his flight, so he, he told the chauffeur to speed up. But the chauffeur was like, I, you know, I, I can't speed. I, I'll lose my job if I get pulled over. And uh, so he wouldn't speed. And so the, uh, the Pope said, all right, you pull over, I'll drive, all right? So they pulled over, they switched places, and uh, the Pope put the metal to the floor, and he was zooming down the road, and it caught the attention of a police car. And a policeman pulled him over. And as the police officer approached the driver's window, he instantly recognized who it was. And he said, wow, I I didn't realize it was you. Uh, Where are you going? He said, to the airport. And the officer said, well, I'll be your escort. Just follow me. We'll get you there on time. So the officer went back to the squad car, and his partner was waiting there. And he said to his partner, you'll never believe it. The person in that limousine is the most important person in the whole world. And his partner said, really? Who is it? He said, I don't really know. But the Pope was his chauffeur. (laughs) Yeah, not a lot of laughs. I get it. That's all right. This in some way, though, is what Isaiah is doing here. He's filling our minds with the greatness of God by describing the angels that attend him. These powerful burning angels whose voices shook the earth, they were so humbled, so overcome by the greatness and beauty and splendor and holiness of God that all they could say, covered faces, covered feet, all they could say is holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Uh, Alyssa, my wife, and I took a trip to the Grand Canyon uh, during the first year of our marriage. And uh, as we anticipated that trip, we had both been there before. We had faint memories. It had been quite a few years since we'd, either of us had been there. But we had some faint memories, you know, in the back of our mind. I also am a, a big uh, fun fact guy. So if you have some fun facts for me, uh, I'll take them and, and use them as my own. But I I like fun facts. And so I had some fun facts about the Grand Canyon. You know, it's 277 miles long at its widest part. It's 18 miles across, and it's over a mile deep. So I was prepared with my my statistics. Well, when we got there, uh, you park in this parking lot, and uh, you're surrounded by these pine trees, and you almost don't know which way to walk because there's nothing to see in the distance, but you follow some signs, you walk down the path through some some pine trees, and all of a sudden it opens up to you, and you're standing on the edge of this giant chasm, and as I stood there, I experienced it, and I took it in, and all I could say was, wow, wow, 
And I'd walk five feet, and it would somehow look different, and I'd pause, and I'd say, wow. Well, these burning angels who were so overcome with the brilliance of God, all they could say was, holy, holy, holy. They were captivated in this constant state of awe. You know, as a little kid, I used to think that these angels had, you know, a rough job there in heaven. I mean, all they do is fly around and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. You know, who wants to do that for the rest of their lives? Sounded boring to me. Because, you you know, in our human nature, uh, the longer you're around something, the less you're impressed by it. So even if you grow up next to the Grand Canyon and you look outside your uh, back door and you see the Grand Canyon, you can lose its awe. And you think, yeah, it's no big deal. But with God, that simply cannot happen. What's happening here is not that they have to keep saying that, that that's their duty and job, and, but rather they're compelled to say it because they are in this constant state of awe and all they can say is holy, holy, holy. It's as if every moment is their first moment they catch a glimpse of the glory of God. That's the experience of holiness. You may know lots about God, lots, lots of statistics about God, uh, character details. You can read up on the various characteristics of God. But here in this passage, you get to peer into heaven. And you can, in part, experience the holiness of God through the reaction of the seraphim. These powerful angels who live in his presence in a constant state of awe. And all they can say is, holy, holy, holy. Now, I quoted A.A. Hodge saying that the holiness of God is the total glory of all his attributes wrapped up together into one, uh, meaning that holiness is the one-word description for God. And that's the primary word that the angels use to describe God, and since this is the case, it would serve us well to actually understand what holy means. There are basically two definitions of holiness, that the, Bible, the way the Bible uses it. Um, R.C. Sproul says that there is a primary definition and a secondary definition, and we're going to start with the secondary definition. The secondary definition of the word holy is the idea of moral perfection. Holy can often be used as a synonym for righteousness or goodness, and that obviously fits into the character of God. He's perfectly moral, and that's a legitimate way of using that word, that term. But there's a secondary meaning. Uh, That's the secondary meaning. The primary meaning of the word holy is to be set apart. Set apart. Uh, In a different league. It's like trying to uh, compare a rut in the road with the Grand Canyon. You know, they're both holes in the ground, true, but they're not in the same category. Or it's like trying to fit the sun into your marble collection. They're both spheres, but they're not at all the same thing. Holy means to be set apart, different, unique, so unique uh, from anything else. And so when we say God is holy, that means he's so unique and so different from anything else in all creation that he's in a category all by himself, and he doesn't fit neatly into our boxes. And he's holy in every dimension of his character. He's creator, we are creature. He is infinite, we are finite. You know, he pulls the galaxies and stars into place, and I pull a wagon down the road. He's in a category that we'll never fully understand because we are 
only creature. I'm afraid one of the awful blasphemies of our day is the pattern of treating God casually, even and especially at church or among Christians. We treat him as if he's, you know, one of us, as if he's in our category. We do our very best to bring God down to our level, to treat him as our buddy next door, someone to joke around with, to sort of flippantly use his name. Or how often do we sit in judgment of what God's done? And we wonder, like, God, obviously, you don't know what you're doing here. You didn't work this out the way it's supposed to work out. And we judge him. Or we judge his word. God, that's harsh. You shouldn't have done that that way. You should have responded this way. Now, I fully affirm that he is our father and our friend and our shepherd and our savior and our comforter and our encourager. And he became one of us, it's true, in Jesus Christ but he's also holy in a whole different category. So much so that these mighty angels covered their faces and their feet and they lived in perpetual awe saying, holy, holy, holy. We have to guard ourselves from falling into the flippancy of our day and we need to be careful to treat God with the highest reverence and honor because he is holy. So we need to experience his holiness. We need to understand the meaning of his holiness. And third and last, we need to consider the touch of his holiness. When Isaiah caught a glimpse of this holy, holy, holy God, he instantly despaired because he was this unclean sinner. When you see your own life in light of the holiness of God, that reveals actually how unholy you are. I remember uh, some years ago painting my garage quite a while ago, and I actually don't enjoy painting that much, and so I painted one coat of white primer on the garage door, and uh, I stepped back, and I looked at it, and I thought, you know, that, that's a pretty good coat of primer, so uh, I took a break, I went inside, got a drink, uh, I took a break for about, you know, two years, and uh, when I came back two years later, the, the door, in my opinion, still looked white, but I figured it's time to put a top coat on, so... I started to put that top coat of paint on. And it was the brightness and cleanness of that top coat that showed me how dirty and cracked that door really was. You know, I thought that door was white until I compared it to what was actually white. You know, in one sense, you can walk through life thinking you're a pretty good person. You know, I'm not like that person who cheats and lies and steals. I'm I'm pretty good. And you could feel pretty clean walking around. But when you catch a glimpse of the holiness of God, the automatic result is that it shows how dirty you are. And this is exactly what happened to Isaiah. He saw this holy God, and he didn't say, wow. He said, whoa. I'm a dead man. He was, without a doubt, one of the godliest men who have ever walked the earth, but compared to the holiness of God, he was filthy, and he knew it. And he was condemned. If that's how he responded, how much does that condemn you and me? The passage could end there. God could strike Isaiah down. But what the most amazing thing perhaps in this passage is that this holy, holy, holy God, instead of striking Isaiah dead in his sin, he sent one of his angels with a, a burning coal in his hand from the altar. And he touched Isaiah's mouth with that coal. And the angel said, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. 
This heavenly altar is where Jesus would one day lay down his life. Which means that Jesus, the holy, holy, holy God, who owed us nothing, the righteous one, he became human and he offered himself on that cross as a sacrifice, offering himself on that altar there in heaven in order to cleanse Isaiah and to cleanse you and to cleanse me and to cleanse people like us. And he did so to make for himself a holy people. This holy, holy, holy God touches people and makes them holy again. In the New Testament, we are referred to as saints, which is the noun form of the word holy. We are his holy people, cleansed through the blood of Christ. So when you're confronted with the holy God, your only hope is the blood of Jesus. Not your own good works, not your good life, because the reality is you're filthy and you're dead unless Jesus cleanses you. You trust in him, he touches your lips with his blood, and he says, your guilt is taken away, your sin atoned for, you are holy to the Lord. You need his touch of holiness. You know, there's so much more to talk about in this passage, but our our time here draws to a close. But the question, who is God? He's holy, which is the total glory of all his attributes wrapped up together into one. When you experience his holiness and understand his holiness and are touched by his holiness, it changes everything. Uh, Chuck Colson was a man who was heavily involved in the Watergate scandal back with Nixon in the 1970s. And because of his role back then in that uh, scandal, he spent seven months in prison. And right before he was a Christian, or right before he was arrested, he became a Christian. And that started him on a journey. And on that journey, he listened to the R.C. Sproul series, The Holiness of God. And, and this is what he wrote after he listened to that. He said, this gave me a taste of the majesty of God, which only made me thirst for more of him. It gave me a taste of the majesty of God, which made me thirst for more of him. As we study the attributes of God, as we consider the holiness of God today, let it inflame in you a thirst for more of him. Who is God? He's holy. Live in light of the holiness of God. Let's pray. Our God, we join with the heavenly angels, those powerful beings. We come humbly in your holy presence and we declare with them, holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with your glory. We confess that too often times we lose sight of your holiness. We bring you down to our level. So we ask you to forgive us and help us to live in light of your holiness. Let us be in a constant state of awe of you. We thank you for your holy touch, the touch of Jesus that cleanses us and makes us holy once again, turns us from sinners to saints. And as we get a taste of your holiness, let that cause us to thirst for more of you. All for your glory, we ask these things. In Jesus we pray. Amen.